my dad, who is a preacher, used to love to go to churches that didn't have clocks. And you notice there's no clock. Then he felt he could preach as long as he liked. And in fact, what he used to say was, hmm, in fact, I notice there's not even a calendar. <laughs> um, but I promise I won't speak a long time today. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the price of admission. And that it's bigger and smaller than you thought. In my life, uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, words are very important. And words can be incredibly provocative and interesting. Like there was one's joy, death, peace, money. They, they are emotive. They, they create responses in us. And how about these ones? Liberty or fairness, <laughs> regret, perfect or perfection, intimacy, right? These are they're significant words. And uh, so these are all topics for future sermons, perhaps, you know? <laughs> or, or a good one for a preacher. Right? <laughs> we'll keep it short. But the word I want to talk to you about today is redemption. So, uh, being a good lawyer, you have to start with the definition, right? So what does redemption even mean there? And so you see up on the, the board, I've got the definition from the Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary. And it says, redemption means to buy back, to repurchase to get or win back. And number two, to free from what distresses or harms, such as to free from captivity by payment of a ransom. So think of a hostage-taking situation. Uh, B, to extricate from or to help to overcome something detrimental. To release from blame or debt to clear the debt, to free from the consequences of sin. And then in the dictionary that I use every day, which is a huge dictionary, the Black's Law Dictionary, the legal definition of redemption is the act or instance of reclaiming or regaining possession by paying a specific price. Right? These are all quite provocative, I thought, as I, as I contemplated those ones. But that, the last one there, what struck me when I read the legal definition was thinking of a pawn shop. Uh, that you go give something to the pawnbroker for some money, but then you have a certain period in which you're allowed to redeem that thing, pay it back. Um, and so there's very much that notion uh, in this idea of redemption. And so, in the law, uh, in my day-to-day -day life, this word comes up a lot. Debt. <laughs> a liability on a claim. You owe me. I owe you. Um, and one that comes up a lot in my life, and no doubt in Brian's life too, <laughs> is a mortgage. Okay? Um, and this is interesting legally. A conveyance, that means a transfer, of title to the property that is given as security 
for the payment of a debt or the performance of a duty, and that will become void upon payment or performance according to stipulated terms, also termed archaically a dead pledge, <laughs> which is interesting because you notice mortgage is actually part from the French word mort, which means death or to die. So a mortgage is a terrible thing, <laughs> right? And, and legally, I have to tell you, it's even worse than you think it is, okay? Uh, two things, I will make it even worse for you if you are a debtor to a mortgage, is, uh, first of all, the house may not be enough because a mortgage is not just a swap of the money for the house. There is also a personal covenant included in a mortgage, which means if you don't pay the debt and they sell the house and there's still money owing, they come after you personally, okay? Or CMHC, if you're lucky. <laughs> but so there's the first bit of bad news. And the second bit of bad news is legally, you see there it says a conveyance of title, is if you actually go and analyze the law of mortgage, you actually do give title to the bank, so when you're finished paying your mortgage, they call it the discharge of the mortgage. You are literally receiving back title for your house. Isn't that interesting, right? You've given it away. Even though you're on the title in the land title office, you've actually given away the title until the bank, until you redeem it. What I'd like to read together is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And I'm sorry, I had to kind of squish it in. So if you can't read it there, maybe you have a real Bible, like Brian does. <laughs> and anyway, if you can't read it, I will read it, uh, or you can follow along in your own version. It's a very familiar passage, though. So Luke seven thirty-six. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to, to, said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my tears, my feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So I want to look at this passage perhaps slightly differently than you may have looked at it before. But first of all, let me ask you this question. Why would Jesus and Simon agree that the 500 denarii man loved more because he had been forgiven that debt? What is it about a big debt? Is it that there's big fear? Why do big debts create big fear for us? And is there another B word you can think of when you think of big debt? Bankruptcy. Now listen uh, to what I read when I went looking up the word bankruptcy. The word bankrupt comes from the Italian bancarotta, meaning broken bench. In Italy, moneylenders worked from benches or tables. If a money dealer ran out of money, his bench or table was broken in half and he was out of business. The word had its French equivalent, bankrupt, and subsequently made its way into English language as both a figure of speech and a literal definition of what happened to the affected person. In ancient Greek, so this is more the time when Jesus was on the earth, in ancient Greek civilization, the idea of bankruptcy did not exist. If one person owed money to another and lacked sufficient means to pay, the indebted man, his wife and family, if he had one, were put into debt slavery until the debt had been worked off. Often such debt slavery could last a lifetime. And those of you who were here a few months ago, Jonathan spoke about the unmerciful servant. Remember the guy who was forgiven, what did he work it out to be, $5 billion or something <laughs> in our money? He was forgiven that debt and then did not forgive his fellow servant. And then the upshot was he was thrown into prison until he had paid all of the debt. That was what it used to be. Um, but I was really interested in this source of bankrupt, because does it remind you of anything, the bankarota? Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to, uh, to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And it was just intriguing to me that it was the broken table or the overturned table that was bankrupt. And that was Jesus talking to perhaps the morally bankrupt of his day. Uh, so an interesting parallel there.
But anyway, we're talking about redemption. So do we need redemption? Are we in debt? Well, it's worse than that. (laughs) The Bible says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. So it's not that we are indebted and need redemption from a mortgage or a debt. We are dead. We need to be redeemed to life. That's a completely different concept than the idea of a small debt, 50 denarii, which is about two months' wages back in that day, or 500 denarii, which might be two years' of salary back then. But we are dead, it says. And Luke chapter 7, the passage we looked at, the 50 denarii and the 50, 500 denarii, I suggest to you, are not really the issue that we need to pay attention to. And uh, I see somebody knows the Prince's Bride. <laughs> There's a very funny scene where the main protagonist is apparently dead, but it turns out in the movie he's not completely dead, only mostly dead, right? And Billy Crystal plays this role of bringing him back to life. It is absolutely hilarious, I have to say. Um, but I think most of us will happily agree that if you're 50 denarii dead or 500 denarii dead, it doesn't really make any difference at all, does it? If the issue were uh, a debt of money, if you have no income at all, does it really matter how big the debt is? That's the point that I want to make. We're dead as far as life is concerned. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a little bit dead or a long time dead or whatever, you're dead. You're done and dusted, <laughs> literally. Um, and so there is nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves back in to life. Our defining feature is that we are sinners, first and foremost. And if you want, I can go with you afterwards into the long uh, theology I have about why I think we are sinners because of our fathers. Um, but I won't go there today. But sin is both our who we are as sinners, and it is what we do. We sin. We do things wrong. And it's interesting, the biblical definition of sin is to miss the mark. It's like the archer misses the target is the definition. And we don't always think that way. I think we're more judgmental about sin than God is. But we miss the mark. And the the simple question of that is, well, what's the mark? And our Bibles tell us that the mark is perfection, right? Again, I, I mean, as soon as you say that to me, I, I say, well, that's impossible, right? How do you possibly uh, meet the mark? That's our next slide, actually, James. Thank you. If you're dead, you're dead. And there's nothing to be done about it. You cannot redeem anything. You cannot work harder to pay off that mortgage. It doesn't matter whether it's 50 denarii or 500 denarii. Um, You can't do anything 
about it. But we were dead in our transgressions and sin. But First Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have been purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. We're all going to die one day. I absolutely guarantee you it. As your lawyer, <laughs> I promise. And there are very, very few things in this life that you can say that. I promise. I guarantee it. Right? Um, but unless the Lord comes back, and a lot of people think he could come any day, <laughs> given the chaos we're seeing at the minute, we know we're going to die physically. But what these passages are saying to us is we're already dead until we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what this is saying. And that we're brought into life, bought back from death. The dead pledge is ripped up, if you will, by Jesus. The mortgage of death is discharged. It didn't matter whether it was 50 denarii or 500 denarii. We didn't have to pay it because we couldn't pay it anyway. We had no income. We had no ability. And that's why Jesus came and died on that cross. So it was incredibly expensive for us to be redeemed. The son of the living God died for you and me, and it didn't cost you and I not one penny but it doesn't stop there. If we want to appropriate that redemption to us and not just be another flower of the field that will one day physically die, then it's not good enough, quite frankly, that Jesus has done it all. We have to say yes or thank you or yes, please, or come to Jesus. This is what the Bible very clearly says. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth you profess your faith 
and are saved. We have to respond to Jesus. It's not enough that he has done it all for us because if we don't come to him, acknowledge our need, acknowledge our death, acknowledge our debt, then we can't, as it were, hand him our mortgage papers so that he can rip them up. We have to give it to him. The 50 denarii guy and the 500 denarii guy, in some ways, we understand why Simon thought the, the, the guy with the bigger debt would be more grateful. But I'm saying to you today, in so many ways, for eternity's sake, those two men were exactly the same. They were both in a debt that they could never get out of, and they could only be redeemed by Jesus. So what was the admission that I was asking about at the beginning of this short sermon? <laughs> what were we being admitted to? This is why Jesus came, right? To give us life abundantly and to give us eternal life. This is the admission. This is the price redemption gives us is admission into eternal life, both now and in heaven. Don't think that eternity is not something yet to come. We begin in life now, and we read that um, in First Peter there. It says, since you're, uh, you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Eternity begins when you are redeemed not when you get to heaven, right? The debt is paid today as soon as you kneel at the cross and ask Jesus to forgive you of that debt. And then one day, and I was trying to pick a verse that portrayed heaven, and this was the one that I, I just was drawn to. This is Isaiah's uh, partial, at least, interpretation of what heaven is going to be like. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Uh, wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beasts. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued or ransomed will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. The difference between the 500 denarii man and the 50 denarii man was the 500 denarii man realized how much he had been forgiven. If we realize how much we have been forgiven, then like in Jesus' parable, we will love much because we will be overwhelmed by this Jesus who has redeemed us. Let's pray together.